to take your Bible and turn to the passage in the Old Testament that uh, that song came from. A little Bible trivia here. Hopefully you know where the Bible talks about God being holy, holy, holy. Anybody want to help the person sitting next to you? You're looking at me like, uh, where do I go? Isaiah chapter 6. Thank you. Uh, Please turn there and let me read for you a very familiar passage that uh, may be too familiar, and I trust that as we talk about it this morning that uh, we'll have a fresh perspective on this passage, and most importantly, on our great God who is thrice holy. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Father, you know I've heard this passage preached many times in my life. I've preached it a number of times in my life. Lord, I'm sure these people who are gathered today have heard this passage, read it, maybe even have it memorized. Lord, would you please be gracious to us and help us to see you in a fresh light today. Lord, that passages like this would never become too familiar and more importantly, you would never become too familiar to us. But Lord, we would always be awestruck whenever we think about you, talk about you, whenever we read about you, whenever we sing about you, that there would be in this overwhelming sense of awe that we know and have a relationship with and will be with for all eternity, the God of the universe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this fall, the pastors and elders have been reading through a a book. It's uh, Paul Tripp's latest book entitled Dangerous Calling. And and in this book, Tripp addresses the unique challenges of pastoral ministry. And one of the most convicting sections of the book is entitled, quote, The Danger of Losing Your Awe, Forgetting Who God Is. And I just wanted to read for you just a portion of what he says in this particular chapter. And uh, he begins this way. He says, perhaps it is all about the dynamic of familiarity. The great Princeton professor and theologian B.B. Warfield wrote this to his students. 
Quote, the great danger of the theological student lies precisely in his constant contact with divine things. It is all the danger of becoming common to you. God forgive you. You are in danger of becoming weary or bored of God. And Tripp goes on. He says, what is the danger? It is that familiarity with the things of God will cause you to lose your awe. Could there be a greater danger in ministry than the one leading the ministry would lose his awe? Every human being has been hardwired by God to live in daily awe of Him. This means the deepest, most life-shaping, practical daily motivation of every human being was designed to be the awe of God. It should be the one thing that motivates everything I do and say. Awe of God should be the reason I treat my wife the way I do and parent my children in the manner that I do. It should be the reason I function the way I do at my job or handle my finances the way I do. Awe of God should shape and motivate my relationship with my extended family and neighbors. Awe of God is meant to rule every domain of my existence. But there's more, he says. Awe of God must dominate my ministry. A central ministry of the church must be to do anything it can to be used of God to turn people back to the one thing for which they were created to live in awe of God. This means that every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by awe of God. The sermon must be delivered in awe and have its purpose to motivate and awe uh, those who hear Children's ministry must have as its goal to ignite in young children a life-shaping awe of God. The youth ministry of the church must move beyond entertainment and do all it can to help teens see God's glory as the thing for which they will live. Women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves and a myriad of self-interests that nip at their hearts and awe of God provides that rescue. Men's ministries need to recognize the coldness in the heart of so many men to the things of God and confront and stimulate men with their identity as those created to live and lead out of a humble zeal for God's glory rather than their own. Missions and evangelism must be awe-driven. And then he says this, it's very hard to preach and shape the ministry of the church this way, if familiarity has effectively robbed you of your awe of God. He says it's very difficult in ministry to give away what you do not possess yourself. And then as the antidote at the end of the chapter, he simply says, confess the offense of your boredom. Confess your boredom. Confess the fact, confess to God that you're bored with him. Enough about me. How about you? Has familiarity with the things of God caused you to lose your sense of awe of God? Are you possibly bored with God? You say, how do, how do I know I might be bored with God? Well, one simple test is are you looking for other things besides God to satisfy your heart? Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. In other words, if, if you're like, you know what, I really want, that, that looks more exciting, that looks more fun, that looks more satisfying, and you know, God, I'm just, you know, uh, you're not really doing it for me right now, and so I really 
would like to find excitement and, 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 and uh, satisfaction and happiness in this, whatever this is. Well, that's a good indication that you're bored with God, right? If you're sinning, right, to get satisfaction of some sort uh, that you're not finding in God, you're bored with God. You're basically saying, God, you're not enough for me. I got to go somewhere else to find something that brings me joy. And so I want to help us this morning by reminding us of how awesome God is. By looking at one of the most awe-inspiring descriptions that God ever gave of himself anywhere in Scripture. And of course, it's here in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, the book of Isaiah, as you know, is a record of the prophetic ministry of Isaiah to the nation of Judah. And here in chapter 6 in particular, Isaiah described how God had called him and how God commissioned him to serve him as a prophet. And like every prophet, God had to first prepare him for the job. And so in the case of Isaiah, God prepared him by giving him this vision of his majestic holiness that overwhelmed him with a sense of his utter sinfulness. And he was never the same after this awe-inspiring, life-shaping encounter with God. And I would submit to you that this is the kind of experience that we all need to have as individuals, you say, well, what would that look like? Um, I know I shouldn't sit around and expect to have a vision, a literal vision of God like Isaiah did. So what would that look like in my life? How, How could I have a similar encounter with God that's not mystical, but is very biblical, very practical? Well, I think we could take this, this, what was for Isaiah, a literal vision and, and to principalize it in a way that would make it very practical for us in that uh, there's basically four phases here, we see, involved in an awe-inspiring, life-shaping encounter with God. First of all, we should be captivated by God. We should be captivated by God. Secondly, we need to be convicted by God. Thirdly, we need to be cleansed by God. And then lastly, we need to be commissioned by God. And so let's look at these four phases of, a, of an awe-inspiring, life-shaping encounter with God to see if this has actually happened to us, if we experienced this in an appropriate way, manner that we would in our generation, where we are at in the plan of God for the ages. Have we experienced something similar, or is this something that we still have yet to experience? First of all, we need to be captivated by God. Notice verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. And before we get to this vision that Isaiah had, we need to deal with this phrase in the year of King Uzziah's death because that provides us the historical context. And that is always very important uh, to understand the full meaning of a, of a text is to understand when it happened and why it happened. And so who's this King Uzziah? King Uzziah was uh, the king of Judah. He reigned for over 50 years. And during his reign, the Lord blessed the nation of Judah greatly. They experienced an amazing season of peace and prosperity. However, this success went to Uzziah's head. And he became very proud and he lost his sense of reverence and awe for God, which caused him to do something that ultimately led to his death. We don't have time to look at it this morning in detail, but you can just write down 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 to 21. 
And there we find how uh, Uzziah decided that since he was the king, he could do pretty much anything he wanted. He was the king. Why not? And so he entered the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense, which was a task reserved by God only for, for the priests. And so when the priests saw what he was about to do, they confronted him and they, de- they demanded him to get out of the temple. And so Uzziah was, was livid that the temple staff had the audacity to order him around. And so while he was raging against them, his forehead immediately broke out with leprosy. And so they quickly ushered him out of the temple because he was unclean at that point. And Uzziah remained a leper until the day he died, all because he violated God's holiness. And so Isaiah was well acquainted with Uzziah's life and, more importantly, his death. And the deadly consequences of irreverently infringing on God's holiness as a result of losing your sense of awe for God. And so it's no wonder that Isaiah responded the way he did when he came face to face with this Lord, the King of Kings. And he says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, with that as the backdrop, with that fresh on my mind, right, I saw the Lord. Now, Isaiah may have had this experience in the temple in Jerusalem, but in his vision, he was taken up to heaven itself. And and really, as we'll see, everything in this whole experience was designed to, to show Isaiah the transcendent holiness of God. Notice it says that I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So here is God sitting on a throne, signifying his sovereign reign as the, as the king of kings over heaven and earth. And the throne was not just on the same level, right, uh, as everyone else. It was high and lifted up to show that God is far above his creatures, And he was wearing this this robe that was so long that it filled the entire temple. Imagine, you know, it says the train of his robe. Imagine if we had a wedding here and and the bride kind of overdid it a bit and she had this long train and the train was so long that that it didn't even fit, you know, through the door. It was still out there. So we had to bundle it all up and we bring it in and and there was not enough space to put the train. It was all, oh, everywhere you turn, there was this train. You're like, whoa. That's, that's some train. Well, well, that's the point. This is just showing God's majesty, his, his, his regal nature. He had this long, flowing robe that was just off the charts. Verse 2, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And so here we have this picture of these attending angels, these holy angels called seraphim, literally burning ones, and they had six wings, two to cover their feet, I think in reference to the fact that they were on holy ground, two to cover their face because the Bible says you can't see God and live, right? So they're working with their faces covered as not to see the Lord, and then two to hover around God, two more wings. And they were at his beck and call. They were ready to serve him at a moment's notice. And the, the picture I get in my mind of, of, of this scene is, is kind of a, a, a group, a flock of holy hummingbirds. 
You ever watch those hummingbirds, right? And they're just, they're an amazing creature and they just kind of stay in one place. They hover and their wings are just like flapping like crazy. You can't even see them, right? But they're just like, like hovering like a little helicopter, right? And they're just, and they dart around really fast, right? Amazing creatures. And I, I get that picture in my mind, these holy hummingbirds surrounding the Lord and attending to the Lord. And notice it says in verse three, and one called out to another and said, here it is, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so these these seraphim were chanting in an an antiphonal way, back and forth, exalting the holiness of God to the highest possible measure. They didn't just say he was holy. They didn't just say he was holy, holy. They said he was holy, holy, holy. And this was, uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, in the Jewish culture was the way for them to emphasize something important was they use repetition. This was like us underlining something or bolding something. And here the text is highlighting, it's emphasizing the supreme importance of God's holiness. And so what does it mean when we say that God is holy? The Bible says that he is holy. What does that mean? Well, the word literally means to cut or to separate. That's what the word holy means. And so in other words, to be holy means to separate or probably better to set apart something from something else. And so the fact that God is holy means that he is both set apart from sin, we know that, right? But he's also set apart from us. And so there's really these two aspects of God's holiness. First of all, he's set apart from us. He's set apart from creation. 1 Samuel 2.2 says there is no one holy like the Lord. In other words, no one begins to compare with the Lord. There's a profound difference between God and the rest of his creation. He's completely different than us. He's completely distinct from us. He's absolutely other than us. And so holiness, in one sense, signifies how he's infinitely above and beyond us, how there's this infinite distance that separates him from us. And so he's set apart from creation, but he's also set apart from corruption. Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure or too holy to look at evil. In other words, God is absolutely free from anything wicked or evil. He's too pure to even look at sin, let alone do it. And so he's untouched, he's unstained by sin, he's perfectly pure, he's without sin. He he only and always does what is right. He cannot tolerate sin in any form any evil in his presence. He can never excuse or ignore sin, no matter how small. He hates it and he must punish it. So God is set apart from creation. He's set apart from corruption. And I think this is also interesting that, that holy is the one word that God used more than any other word to describe himself in the Bible. God wrote the Bible. He chose the words, right, to describe himself. And the one word he chose to use more than any other word to describe himself was the word holy. I think it's safe to say that is the most important thing that God wanted us to know about him, is that he's holy. In fact, some theologians have concluded that holiness is the chief attribute of God. In fact, some even go further and say it's just not one of many attributes. It's the supreme attribute. It's the sum of all the other attributes. It's the crown jewel, if you will, uh, of God. One man is wisely stated this, he said, holiness is arguably the most significant of all God's attributes. When the angels worship in heaven, they don't say eternal, eternal, eternal. 
They don't say faithful, 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 or wise, 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 or mighty, mighty, mighty. They say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And by the way, this is not the only time we are given a glimpse into heaven and what the angels are saying up there. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, that sounds familiar, right? Might be the same guys here, um, are full of eyes around and within and day and night. They do not cease to see, say, excuse me, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. If we were to enter heaven this afternoon, I think this is the, possibly the first thing we would hear because this is what they're saying. Day and night, they do not cease to say. This is going to be the perpetual praise of the angels and us throughout all eternity. We're never going to stop saying this. Day after day, year after year, millennium after millennium, forever and ever, this will be our song. Notice what else is going on in the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And so at the, at the, the sound of these angels, right, uh, saying holy, 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 back and forth, just resonated and echoed through the, the, the chambers of heaven and, 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 uh, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled. Interesting. The foundations of the thresholds. In other words, the doorways, which are typically the strongest part of a structure, right? And when we were in California and we kind of were getting used to the earthquake thing that happens every once in a while, they said, hey, make, make sure you go to a doorway. Because that's typically the last place that would crumble. There's more support around the doorway, right? So get in a doorway. Well, the thundering praise of these angelic voices was so loud, it was so powerful, it was causing even the doorways to rattle. Not to mention the smoke that was filling the throne room there. Again, all this shaking, all this smoking is just representative of the holy fire of God's presence. And so Isaiah's vision here of God's holiness made a profound impact on his life. It really set the tone for his entire life and ministry. And he stressed the theme of God's holiness throughout this entire book. In fact, he called God the Holy One. That's kind of unique to, to, to Isaiah. He called God the Holy One 31 times. I think he got the point that God wanted him to get, right? And so he was, first of all, captivated, or maybe you could even say captured by the holiness of God. Secondly, he was convicted by God. He was convicted by God. Notice his response, verse 5, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. That word woe is a prophet's word. That was the word that the prophets would use to pronounce judgment on people. And uh, earlier in the book of Isaiah, he pronounced several woes on the nation of Judah. Woe are you. Woe to you. In other words, cursed are you. God's not happy with you. He's going to punish you. That's what woe meant. You didn't want to hear woe. 
because you knew something bad was going to happen. But notice he pronounces a judgment on himself. He says, woe is me. I'm cursed. Why? For I am, I am ruined. I'm undone. I'm unraveling. I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm, 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 I'm being annihilated. I'm, just, I'm, I'm going to pieces. I'm melting, right, as the Wicked Witch of the West says, right? That, that was the idea. It was like he was just, he was like feeling like he was going to explode here in the presence of the Lord. Why? He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so this vision of God's holiness produced in Isaiah this profound conviction of his sin. He had, a, he had an overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness. And what's ironic to me is that he was convicted most about the sin of his mouth, which was the specific instrument that God used or would use to communicate his truth to the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah. I mean, as a prophet, right, you were God's mouthpiece to speak about God's holiness. And so Isaiah realized that he had an unholy mouth, an unclean mouth, He, he, he preached about God's holiness, I'm sure. He believed in God's holiness, but now he'd actually experienced God's holiness firsthand. And so for the first time in his life, it seems that he saw God for who he really was. And consequently, for the first time, he saw himself for who he really was. And he was just crushed and convicted by his utter filthiness and unworthiness. And when we see God's awesomeness, we see our awfulness. When we see God's greatness, we see our grossness. When we see God's holiness, we see our hideousness. And notice what he says here. Interesting. He says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm, in other words, I'm history. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was a godly enough man to know what God had told Moses when Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no man can see me and live. You can't. You, you want to see me? I can't show you my glory. Because I show you my glory, you would implode. And so I'll, I'll stick you in a little cave and I'll walk by and I'll put my hand over the cave. I'll let you see my backside just a little bit, but you can't see my glory. You couldn't handle it. Nobody could handle it. You can't live. And so Isaiah realized, I just saw the Lord. And my theology is you can't survive that experience. And that really was the, the case for Lots of people in the Bible who came face to face with God. Remember Manoah uh, in Judges 13? This was uh, Samson's father. He saw an angel of the Lord. He didn't realize it was the angel of the Lord. Um, God himself, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. And once he realized that, he said to his wife, he said, quote, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. That's it, honey. Nice knowing you. We're done. We saw God. We just saw God. And then John, I love the example of John, the Apostle John in Revelation 1, 
when he saw this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. I mean, just like, you see him, and just like, <laughs> like you die, you pass out. Done, lights out. And this is what always happens when we see God for who he really is. We, we see ourselves for who we really are. And I think the, the essence is, is, is that Isaiah said, man, if I saw God, that means he saw me and I'm in trouble. And, and this, is, this is what needs to happen to all of us because let's face it, we, we compare ourselves to other people. And as long as our standard is other people, we feel okay about ourselves. Because we're not messing up as bad as that person, right? But how about when we compare ourselves to, to God? We become painfully aware of how far we fall short of His holiness. Now think of this example here in Isaiah 6, these other examples that I've mentioned about people that actually came into the presence of God and what happened to them, I I can't help but think of the trend in the church today and how it seems like churches are just bent on providing this upbeat, casual, come-as-you-are atmosphere where people feel comfortable and right at home, right, in God's presence. And, and I think it's a selling point because that's what most people are looking for in churches today. They want to have a feel-good experience. They want to leave happy. They want to leave encouraged. And naturally, I think that's going to happen at times. When we leave church, we'll be upbeat, we'll be excited, we'll be thankful, we'll be inspired, we'll be encouraged by the singing, by the, the sermon, by the fellowship, the interaction. But sometimes, listen, going to church can be a devastating experience. Because when you talk about sin, things can get pretty ugly, can't they? And you're not going to leave feeling very good about yourself. Now, I do hope that you're encouraged and you're challenged every time you come here, but if we are truly coming into the presence of God like Isaiah, it could be painful at times, but ultimately it will be helpful, amen? It'll be helpful because like Isaiah, even though we may be shattered by our sinfulness as we consider how wretched we are, God is gracious and merciful not to leave us in that shattered state and he will respond to us uh, as we are broken and contrite uh, and, and confessing sin as, 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 as Isaiah did here and he'll respond by cleansing us just like he cleansed Isaiah. And so not only... Do we need to be captivated by God? We need to be convicted by God. We need to be cleansed by God. We need to be cleansed by God. And, and this is, this is uh, when this thing starts looking up a bit here. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. I'm thinking, ouch, that would hurt. Dealing with sin hurts. It's a painful process, Right? But he says this, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Love that. So here's Isaiah crushed by this vision of God's holiness, but because he responded with a broken and contrite heart. God purified him. God forgave him. God put him back together again, if you will. And as a result of this experience, Isaiah became an advocate for God's compassionate forgiveness. And, 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 and just listen to 
to, to some of the things he said in Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That was a guy who's speaking from his own experience. That he experienced God's compassion and God's abundant pardon. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. Like, okay, that's great. I know that you're way far beyond us, God. Uh, Nothing I can do about that. You're beyond me. But then he says this, this is God talking, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. Yes, God is transcendent. He's beyond us. He's far away from us. But the moment we break, the moment we are broken and contrite and we become low in our spirit and we confess our sin, he is, boom, right there by our side. Isn't that awesome? The, the, the transcendence and the imminence of God. It's a mystery how he can be so high and lofty and far above us and yet right there with us by our side. And nothing initiates God's imminent presence than confession of sin. Because in some ways, we go away from God. God doesn't go away from us when we sin. We go away from God. We pull ourselves away. We walk away, right? And as soon as we admit that sin, we confess that sin, and we're broken and humble and contrite about that sin, God, it's not that we rush back into God's presence. He rushes to us. And so we need to experience this cleansing from the Lord. And so having responded to God's holiness with this broken and contrite heart and having confessed his sin and experienced God's cleansing, now Isaiah was ready to tell Judah about a holy God who not only judges sin, but also forgives those who are willing to repent and turn back to him. And so lastly, Isaiah was commissioned by God. He was commissioned by God. Notice verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And so there was a method to God's madness here, if we can call it that. He was up to something here with this whole experience that he gave to Isaiah, that he was looking for someone to step up and warned Judah of the judgment to come if they didn't repent. And so he needed somebody who had not lost their awe of God. He needed to find somebody that wasn't bored with God like the rest of the nation. He needed somebody that could stir them up. And so he wanted to just refocus Isaiah and say, Isaiah, just, just so you know, the rest of the nation has gotten real familiar with me. In fact, a little too familiar with me. Uzziah, Uzziah being, you know, example A, exhibit A of that. Um, I need you not to be too familiar with me. <laughs> I need you to be shocked and awed by me. To make you useful to me. And so Isaiah humbly responds to God's call here. He says, here am I, send me. When I was growing up, I heard this passage preached often, you know, for, you know, missions. You know, and hey, we need, you know, God is calling. 
people to go out and be his voice in this world. And he's looking for people to step up and say, here am I, send me. And it was this bold proclamation, here I am. And, And I don't get the sense that after this experience, Isaiah wasn't doing much bold stepping out. I think he was more of a very humble, tentative, you're looking for somebody, God? I heard, I heard that. You're looking for somebody? Anybody else around here could take this call? This, right? I think he was just very humble, no self-confidence, no self-righteousness, right? Lord, if I, I'm available, if you could use me, right? And so he says, here I am, God, send me. Here, I'll go. I'll be your man. Verse nine, he said, go, tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. I mean, you're not preachers, but just imagine yourself at your ordination service. And uh, some guy's going to get up and encourage you and exhort you about your future ministry. And he, so he's going to give you a charge. And he basically gets up and says, hey, by the way, brother, nobody's going to listen to anything you have to say. Just wanted you to know. Nobody's going to listen to anything you have to say. In fact, you're just going to make them mad. And they're going to rebel even more against God. And so here's God warning Isaiah that his message was going to be rejected. And his ministry would have a blinding and deafening and hardening effect on the people of Judah. And so I love the innocence in, in, of, of Isaiah. Next verse. Then I said, Lord, how long? <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of funny. You think about it. I mean, after hearing what he just heard, he's wondering how long he would have to minister without any positive results. This doesn't sound very fun. How, how many years am I going to have to be doing this? In verse 11, he says, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. I mean, it went from bad to worse. Because God essentially said, listen, you're going to be ministering for as long as it takes for Judah to fall and be taken into exile by the Babylonians. Not a very encouraging prospect for ministry. And I would imagine that at this point, Isaiah was wondering why he had volunteered for this job, right? But then look at verse 13. I love this consolation. In the midst of this very difficult call, God gave Isaiah this consolation. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so lest he feel like a total failure... God encourages Isaiah with a promise that, listen, there will be a remnant. This won't be a complete wash, right? There'll be a remnant that will survive. And he likened that remnant of the people of Judah to a stump of a fallen tree 
right? The tree gets cut down and the loggers, the Babylonians haul it off, but there's still the stump. They left the stump. And that thing's going to begin to sprout anew and grow back. And that was a picture of what was going to happen when God would restore, right, the nation of Israel. And so in the midst of this seemingly grim and, and pointless mission, God injected this ray of hope. And we know ultimately that this blessed hope would be realized in who? Jesus Christ, right? The coming of the Messiah. And I think it's really cool that God revealed more messianic prophecy to Isaiah than anyone else in the Old Testament. I mean, that's why he's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. In fact, let me give you one example. Turn to the Gospel of John. You're wondering if we were still in the Gospel of John, right? So yeah, I'll give you a a shout out here to the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. Here's John commentating on the people's rejection of Jesus. Even though he performed all these miracles and signs, people still refused to believe in him. John chapter 12, verse 40. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he's going to quote Isaiah, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see and with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I, and I heal them. Sound familiar? Basically, they're not going to listen to you. In fact, you're going to blind, they're going to be more blind, more deaf when you're done. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. Who's he? Isaiah. Isaiah said this because Isaiah saw his glory and he spoke of him. What's the context? Who's the he and the him? Jesus. These things Isaiah said because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of Jesus. And you should have already known that because when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, we know the Bible says you can't see God and live. We know that God is spirit, right? So who did Isaiah see in Isaiah chapter 6? I think he saw Jesus. I think he saw a pre-incarnate vision of the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we know that God stepped off that throne, laid aside that robe off the charts, robe that he had, right? And came to earth. And he lived a perfect, holy life. Died on a cross in the place of unholy people like us. And the cross is really the ultimate proof of God's holiness because it was there that God showed how much he hates sin and how far he was willing to go to punish sin and to preserve his holiness. In other words, God hates sin so much that he killed his son to destroy it. And so when Christ hung on that cross, God unleashed his holy hatred for sin on Christ, on his son. And the moment Christ died, you remember the veil, right, in the temple that for centuries had blocked the Holy of Holies, right? Kept people from accessing the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. It tore from top to bottom, symbolizing that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, sinners could now gain access to God's holy presence. 
sinners, unholy people in the presence of the holy God. And by raising Christ from the dead, God affirmed the demands that the demands of his holiness had been fully satisfied. And so now God offers forgiveness to those who are willing to confess and forsake their sin and place their faith in Christ, death and resurrection alone for their salvation, to escape God's wrath and hell and to spend eternity in heaven. And again, this is amazing. How can unholy people ever end up in a holy heaven? Well, it happens this way. When we repent and receive Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are clothed with His what? Righteousness, another word for holiness. We're clothed with His holiness, which allows us to enter heaven where we will forever worship God in the beauty and splendor of His holiness. There's a dress code for heaven. And you can't get in unless you're dressed right and you got to have the robe of righteousness that we gain through Christ, the holy robe of Christ. A.W. Tozier, who has written a lot about the character of God, says this about this passage back Isaiah 6, talking about Isaiah's experience. He says, this is what conversion is. To be saved, to repent, to be forgiven of your sin, to see a vision of God in your heart, to see Jesus Christ on the cross and on the throne, to be brought into the presence of this holy God. Sounds like he's actually saying that Isaiah maybe got saved. Something to think about. And then... Tozier says this, you can go through the whole routine of the church and never have an experience at all like this. In other words, you can go, you can, you can go to church your entire life and never be truly saved, right? You can learn to say, God is love when you're little. You can get a Bible for passing from one grade to another. You can get big enough to make a speech in a Sunday school program. You can get old enough to sing in the choir, join the church, and be baptized, and yet never have an experience of the great God breaking in upon your consciousness, but living always once removed from God. And I can't think of a greater tragedy than someone who goes to church all the time, but never has this awe-inspiring life shaping encounter with God, and so they end up living once removed from God. There are some of you here this morning that I would submit to you that you are not truly in a relationship with God. You're living once removed from God. You're here and you're part of the action, but you really don't have a relationship with God. You've never truly been captivated by God's holiness. You've never truly been convicted of your sinfulness. You've never been cleansed by God's forgiveness. And you've never been commissioned to serve him. In other words, you're familiar with God, but you've never truly come to know God, and you're not living in daily awe of God. That's what it means to be a Christian is that we live in awe of Christ on a daily basis. And let's be honest, that's not always our experience, is it? 
And that's why we've been so encouraged and so blessed by this little book, Dangerous Calling. It's the kind of book you want to read and throw up against the wall because it's so true. It's so convicting. And so we've been thinking and talking and praying about us as leaders, you know, wanting to make sure that we, as those that God's entrusted to us, the leadership of this church, that that we're able to pass on what we actually are experiencing ourselves, an awe of God, that we are living every day of our lives in awe of God. And I would ask you to pray for us, that that would be true of us, and uh, we're going to be praying that it'll be true of you too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do need your grace and mercy to make this passage a reality in our lives. It's just beyond our comprehension what happened here with Isaiah in your presence. But Lord, thanks for preserving it for us to look at, to consider, to study, to meditate on, and to try to apply. And Lord, we desperately need to have this awe-inspiring, life-shaping experience with you. And we know you're the only one that can make that happen. And so just help us to be sensitive to our sin, Lord, and what you want to do in our lives. Lord, that we be quick to confess, quick to come clean, and that we would just know the joy of being forgiven and cleansed, Lord, and just, just ready to serve, that our natural response to just being forgiven would just be to want to serve you and want to be available to, to, to be your mouthpiece and tell others about Christ and to help those around us who are in need. And so, Lord, just bless us this week, Lord, with, with a daily uh, awe of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.